Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. Oh, you're a mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Welcome to Bums on Seats, your fortnightly in-depth movie review show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ta-da! We have Dave with us today. Hello. And Alistair. Hey. And Lorcan. Hello. And we have a pretty packed show, five films, uh, Shazam! Exclamation mark. The Highwayman, which is just on Netflix. You don't have to leave the house for that one. Dumbo, Pet Cemetery, The Sisters Brothers, and we have a little love letter to Agnes Varda in the middle of the show for you today. What should we get started on, guys? Shazam! Exclamation mark. Because we have a lot to say on that, don't we? Alistair's already given me the old stink eye. <laughs> Here's the trailer. This ah, ah, means Billy! What is happening? You're the only person I know that knows anything about this Cape Crusader stuff. Can I? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sit down. You know, I don't think that's going to buff out. Your phone's charged. Your phone's charged. What the hell? You're like a bad guy, right? Gentlemen! You have bullet immunity! I'm bulletproof. You're dead. Sorry about your window, but you're welcome for not getting robbed. Oh, hey, what's up? I'm a superhero. That sounded like a lot of fun now, Alistair, and I had a lot of fun, and I don't like superheroes or anything, but this is part of the DC universe, as I gather, which is not the Marvel one, it's the other one. Does it fit, though, in that universe for you, or did you just hate it, so you're going to say no to everything <laughs> I say? Well, I, I never saw the film Suicide Squad, um, which was... You... I, that was okay. Least bad superhero film ever. Universally, though, <laughs> it was pretty much hated by critics. Yeah. And as a result, I've since then, I've seen Wonder Woman, I've seen Aquaman, and now I've seen Shazam. Well, they were both stupid, though, those two. But those films were all positively reviewed. Mm. And because I didn't see Suicide Squad, I'm just thinking... Was that, like, as bad as a war crime for all of these films that are quite rubbish to have uh, just been accepted? Because, I mean, I'm sure in comparison to Suicide Squad, something like Shazam is harmless fun. Um, to me, it just feels like a, a poor imitation of the same uh, formula that Marvel have just been doing. It doesn't have sort of a unique identity of its own when compared to the other Marvel films. It just feels like it's trying to follow them. And my analogy that I've uh, been so building up... I cannot up, wait for this. Uh, before Don't mess air, it up. <laughs> ...is that the Marvel films are like fast food, essentially. Um, sometimes, you know, a Big Mac or a meal at another fast food restaurant, you know, there are many available. Sometimes that can hit the spot. But then other times you can eat it and you're just being like, what am I doing with my life? Why am I not eating a proper meal? Halfway through, you start to feel a bit sad. Exactly. <laughs> And that's with Marvel films. Sometimes it hits the spot, sometimes it doesn't. With the DC films, it's like going to a fast food restaurant that has been shut down by the Food Standards Agency for poor hygiene. Right. And it's just reopened. And despite the bad TripAdvisor reviews, despite the fact that they're having to hang a sign in the window saying one out of five, it's you know, poor hygiene. Friend. 
they, they, they assure you, no, this time, trust us, the food is good. And every time with the DC films, it's like, trust us, it's good this time. We're, we're like Marvel now. We've, we've prop, we're a proper superhero film now. I go back and it just tastes like a poor variation of something that I've seen doing done so much better elsewhere. And I'm not even that big a Marvel fan. So that's you're comparing it directly to the type of thing Marvel does. Yes. And so coming into this film not liking superhero films very much, I loved it a lot because I got something very different, I thought, which I found better. So this had a charm and a sort of a more of a handmade family storyline quality to it that I miss from the big superhero films when I number one, don't know anyone's name or understand who they are or care about them. <laughs> so um, this... The guy dressed as a bat is Batman. Um... <laughs> the guy with the rings and the purple face is that big guy who's the green lady's dad in the other one. <laughs> one. Well done. Roger. But so, did did Lorcan or Dave, did you find a, a heartwarming quality about this or was it just another superhero film for you that fell short of the big budget Marvel stuff? I think it gets most of the way there. Um, I think the problem with uh, just to briefly say like it's um, it's about a little kid that gets like a power from a wizard and whenever he says a magic word Shazam he turns into like a grown up superhero. Probably um, should have done that at the beginning. Thanks Lachlan. And so it mostly <laughs> um, it mostly plays out very deliberately like a big type story from the get go um, and it does have like a lot of heartwarming elements like uh, the main kid is uh like forcefully placed in a foster home and he's looking for his real mother and there's a lot of heart comes from that and a lot of heart comes from the foster family that's very accepting of him. The only problem with a two-plus-hour origin story is that as much fun as you have in that first half, the first act specifically, you're, like, loving and having so much fun with all these characters, everything mm-hmm. set up really well. There's this thing in the back of my my mind, at least, so I was like, oh, this this final, that the last act is going to go on for a very long time. As much fun as I'm having in the first act, I'm going to be equally as miserable in you the last act. You can feel the second hour creeping up on you. And that that end battle um, just took it all out of me. They puncture it with enough humor that lasts like half hour to make it completely not monotonous and turn it into like this kind of CGI nightmare that a lot of superhero films, like if a Wonder Woman went there and uh, definitely Aquaman went there and all of the Zack Snyder films went there was just smoke and flame and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I mean the the production design is really great throughout the film especially these there's these monsters that they set up very early on very well um, and whenever they first set them up it's like oh these monsters look really cool I can't wait for Shazam to fight them um, and then they introduce the monsters later on and they're genuinely uh, the art design on them is great and they're genuinely intimidating but then whenever you actually have Shazam fight them, it's like, oh, I don't want to watch this now because now it's just Shazam punching a bunch of CGI things that have lost all their, like, all their... Their human qualities or... All the, just, all the terror that, like... There's oh, okay. a great bit in the middle that uh, whenever the, the monsters storm a an, a business office. Uh, the business office, the CEO, is by is played by John Glover, by the way, so shout out to John Glover. Lovely to see him and <laughs> things again. Nice to see you. Um, and there's like a great like Jurassic Park moment. I won't, I won't give it away, but there's a, a moment, I remember watching Jurassic Park as a kid, and the dinosaur does something to a lawyer, um, and there's a similar thing in the office, and I was like, oh man, they're going to cut away, and they're not going to show it, and they do, which I was very happy about. Um, but I know the the last act does take away a lot. It takes away a lot of the mystique and clever design, like production design they've set up, and it just kind of turns into like the same but different, really. And um, what you were saying there about Jurassic Park, I was just about to ask. It reminded me 
a lot of I feel Captain Marvel was really sold on its nostalgia. Everyone was saying, oh, I know you don't like superhero films. All the music's from the 90s. There's lots of references. You'll love it. This reminded me very much of they had the Jurassic Park moment, reminded me very much of Tom Hanks's Big. And films like this, which I don't have a lot of time for anyone I'm quite cynical about, a lot of the newer ones that are coming out in the last few years seem to be geared towards people our age by saying, look, there's stuff in this from films you liked when you were little, come and see it, because we know that's a demographic that we're going to attract to come and buy tickets for this. They don't seem to have anything new to say. I just think it's dripping in Easter eggs. And I did like this film, but I'm just cynical about the fact that I do see all this Marvel DC Universe stuff. We have one or two every year. I think they're just pulling tricks on us to get us back into the cinema. What do you reckon, Dave? Well, it's a little bit different with this one. They, they've uh, with Captain Marvel, they've you know they've set it deliberately in a time period that they can go back and build the nostalgia. In this one, it, it's kind of transference. So it's like making the kids in the film be nostalgic about things and hoping that that kind of transfers onto the audience. You know, it, it, it is nice to see the comparisons to Big out there. You know, I must shamefully admit, I've never seen Big. I've seen parts of it. So good. Yeah, I know. Everyone tells me. The whole fairground thing at the end is taken from Big, basically. Oh, Oh my God. The keyboard reference in Shazam. (gasps) I got that was amazing. Yeah. It Uh, didn't go on for long enough. They teased you with three and a half seconds. I was like, oh, but, 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 oh. (laughs) But I like it. But at the same time, I kind of like the way they did that because everybody knows that reference and then they take it and they're like, yeah, but this is our movie, so we're just going to skip right past this. We'll give you that little brief, yeah, tantalising glimpse. I agree with and, that. And, you know, that, that's kind of something DC did differently to Marvel. Marvel is, in uh, Captain Marvel, especially Guardians 1 and 2 as well, where they're referencing the different time periods, they fully embrace them. You know, you've got the, the opening dance number of Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Group going along to Mr. Blue Sky. It goes on for a good three or four minutes. Shazam was just kind of like, there's this thing, but also our story. So, wait, done, moving on. And I, I kind of like the pacing for that. I know that Lorcan had a bit of trouble with some of the chop and change, I think you were saying earlier. In terms of when throughout the whole of the movie? Uh, no, in the latter half. Oh, yeah, just the just last yeah. when it When it just turns and it's just like endless it, action. It's it, like, oh, and this. It does suffer from Iron Man syndrome, is what I call it, where he always seems to be fighting people in Iron Man suits and there's like can he not fight something else I mean they have changed that now in Marvel and you know lazy that's what it is yeah but they, they Iron Man 2 and 3 both suffer from just going into a CGI mess Shazam nearly gets there there's some nice bits where it acknowledges the different powers because he's got the powers uh, each letter in his name stands for so he's got the wisdom of Solomon apparently I don't think that's ever shown in the film no he's he's played for a hammy laugh he's quite stupid isn't he but uh, endearingly so yeah and there's some nice moments as well where there's a bit where he finally kind of figures out his power fully, which is what all origin stories in superhero films are about. And he's got to trust in it and believe in it. And, and when he finally embraces it, that's quite a nice little moment because at that point, and Alistair picked up on this, Mark Strong is a serious threat of a villain. Yes. He actually that, and what looks a great like he villain. Yeah. I liked that villain. And, and another thing I wanted to mention again, I find the casting is getting lazy in these big superhero films because I think directors feel like, you don't really care who's behind the suit, especially if they're in their suit for most of the film. But I loved Zachary Levi. Very cute, very charismatic. And also, yeah, Mark Strong, the the villain, was a great choice for a villain. And it reminded me of 
proper old school sort of Bond villains, brilliantly cast, written and acted. And I think they put a little more effort into that villain than a lot of the recent superhero villains I've seen. Do we think Zachary Levi is going to stand up and be as big of a name in a huge franchise like this as someone like Mark Ruffalo is the Hulk? Is he Has he got that staying power? He definitely has the charisma as Shazam. And, you know... The film almost works because of him. I know that I'm less enthusiastic as everybody, <laughs> but I can agree that Max Strong is a tangible threat. I think that part of that is because it is condensed into Philadelphia. It's not like there isn't like world destroying stakes. It's a very small story, so that works. And I think Max Strong is always great hamming it up as a villain, um, even though it is just reminding me that I'd rather watch him as a, a villain in Kick Ass. Um, but. Yeah, Zachary Levi, his performance is like really off the wall, it's bouncy, it's fun. The problem is that he's playing the exact same character as the 14-year-old boy, whose name I've forgotten and I'm probably just going to refer to as young uh, Frankie Muniz. Young Shazam. Um, <laughs> he looks young... a bit like Frankie Muniz. <laughs> yes, him. Uh, or, you know, Frankie Muniz 2019. Uh, he has an incredibly despondent performance, it's devoid of charisma, and I don't think him and Zachary Levi were on set at the same time because they both appear to be playing completely different characters and they they just don't work together. One has no charisma, one has too much charisma, but they're playing the same character and it just kept falling apart for me. Every time the kid kept coming back, I was just like, can you please change to Zachary Levi? This film is almost working because he has the charisma needed to sell this. You do not. You, you are. Just hate children, though. Alistair. I do Everyone hate knows children. That. Um, <laughs> See, I, th- I think yeah. what the, I think what they might have been going for it was um, have the kid actor act more like an adult and have Zachary Levi act more like a kid, and hopefully That's there'll the be a bit of an in between. I didn't think the kid that played Billy Bastion was terrible. I thought he was. I thought he was fine, and I think that was they had him kind of be like a more mature kid. Um, yeah. And unlike that god awful Captain Marvel movie, Shazam cast someone with actual charisma and <laughs> to play a charming fish out of water hero who seems to understand the type of movie that he's in. Locken, you don't uh, you don't like Captain Marvel, is there? Uh, it's, it, now there's there's only a prior podcast now that, that we could hear. Now that it's broken, it's broken a billion dollars, so I'm going to use it as the antithesis argument for every movie I like now. <laughs> that good plug for the podcast yeah. there. If you go on Bums on Seats Facebook or Twitter or the Cambridge 105 radio, radio website, podcasts of all our previous shows are on it. And how long did we go on? I wasn't even part of it about Captain Marvel. Was that maybe 25 That minutes? was about 20, 25 minutes. Yep. Uh, of Lorcan getting angry. Um, you also hate this director. Is it you who hates this director, Lorcan? <laughs> I don't hate the director. I, I, David Samberg. I really didn't like... Um, David Samberg's a weird one because I think he started off making YouTube videos and then Warner Brothers gave him a bunch of money to make a movie out of one of his ideas, which was Lights Out, which I thought was terrible. Yes, but it was. it's like, okay, he just threw a lot of money at An this guy experiment. who has got many experiments. Yeah, to experiment. And then he made Animal Creation, which I hated um, Yeah, but entirely. I didn't do dolls, though, so that's why I hated that. Well, there's barely a doll in it. <laughs> um, the threat of it was constant, omnipresent. <laughs> <laughs> but um, who knew that when you give him actual plot to work with, he's actually quite good. I was, like, really... I, I really liked... He seemed to really play around with how to frame the superhero actions. Like, there's just yeah. a lot of a lot of little innovations that were like it wasn't like by the numbers that we're used to. It was like I he, wouldn't he thought think, about it. I wouldn't think this was by as new of a director as it is. No. And like you said, there are bits where you can feel yourself being sort of pulled along on purpose because he knows he's dipping in the action, but. I've seen films that get a lot slower and more boring than that by a lot say, more seasoned directors. He peppers the action with yeah. still the humour. And it's that's very good humour, actually. It's It sits very well, and it's hard to have 
adults and kids be funny alongside each other. But the writer hasn't done much either. Just an Earth to Echo sort of kidsy film, and that's really it. So I think the writer might be one to look out for as well, Henry Gayden. Um, but we have gone on enough about Shazam, I can say it, exclamation <laughs> mark. Um, it's a certificate 12A. It's showing everywhere in town at the Arts Picture House, kind of unusually, um, at The View and the Light multiplexes and at all the cinemas, uh, Cineworld cinemas all around town. So you can see it pretty much anywhere. It's out now. Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Shall we go to the Netflix one now that I may or may not have just finished this morning? <laughs> but it's another one that I think has kind of divided opinion. Let's have a listen to the trailer and then we'll remember to tell you what it's about before we dive into our very own opinions about it. This is 1934. Gangsters. Submachine guns. And you put cowboys on Bonnie and Clyde? Texas Rangers. This is an emergency alert. Police are not yet releasing details, but have stated that Bonnie and Clyde may have struck again. Forgive me, Father, for I have seen. This is a highly coordinated operation. So much pain and suffering. Roadblocks. Air surveillance. Your time's passed, cowboy. What the hell is the world coming to? Used to be you had to have talent to get published. Now all you gotta do is shoot people. Dressed in white. She used her foot to turn him over so he could see what was about to happen. How sweet. This has gone far enough. I'm gonna take them down. What a fine idea. So that's Highwayman, straight to Netflix, which is not a bad thing these days. Um, the This film is about the Texas Rangers who infamously caught Bonnie and Clyde. So Bonnie and Clyde on the loose for two years, wreaking havoc. Caught in air quotes. Caught in air quotes. Um, uh, no one could catch them. And Kevin Costner's character comes out of retirement, hooks up with Woody Harrelson's character, and these guys chase them across the country basically you did your homework Lorcan and we thank you for that MVP you re-watched Original Body and Clyde was that yesterday? Yeah because I watched, watched it last night and then I watched Hiram Men this morning just to have yeah. a bit of extra background so this film very much focuses on the two highwaymen to the complete almost complete 100% detriment of even seeing Bonnie and Clyde's faces right until the end. But does this film complement that at all? Does it fall completely short? I think I think the original Bonnie and Clyde works as a detriment to the Highwaymen. Um, very quickly into the film, I think there was a, a problem for me that became apparent, and that's the film suffers from a mighty case of uh, tell, don't show. Um, Specifically, we're kind of given scene after scene of Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson's characters just being stand-up guys. That's with them what the Woody's movie. so good at, his storytelling. But he plays like a dour alcoholic. And I still love him. <laughs> but we're, we're treated with scene after scene of them just being stand-up fellas and justifying them and like trying to tell their point of view. Um, and we're we're all constantly hearing about how the Barrow Gang are so bad, um, uh, and then occasionally it, the film will cut to a very brief snippet of like Bonnie and Clyde's actions as seen from like a cold distance. And I see what they're trying yeah. to do there. It's very voyeuristic, isn't it? So yeah. it's it's someone who isn't expecting to come upon this scene, and they're hiding themselves away, but also they can't not look. Can yeah. They? Yeah. But then we're because we're those 
distant scenes are taken out of context. We just we're constantly told about oh they're so bad they're so bad. Yeah. Um, and so because we don't really see them, all I can picture is super charismatic Warren Beatty and like strong-willed Faye Dunaway, and I'm like oh I. I kind of want them to still get away with it, though. What they needed to do, I think, was early on have a scene that's very intimate and shows how like cold-blooded and cruel like Bonnie and Clyde could be. Take uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway completely out of our heads. Like this is what really happened. I see. And right. then intercut that with um, to take to take because we're with Costner and Harrelson through the whole movie. I don't think there's very few scenes where they're not in it, and the film is a significant running time. I think we needed something to offset um, their like good guy kind of their good guy image and constantly hearing about Bonnie and how bad Bonnie and Clyde are. So it's quite um, one-sided. Yeah, and like we, we, the highwaymen are constantly going across America and seeing uh, how everyone's rooting for Bonnie and Clyde because they're like Robin Hood figures. Yeah. Uh, and I think, again, they're like, they're seeing these everyday people emulating Bonnie and Clyde and they're like filled with this disgust. And it's like, oh, again, again, we need to see why it's disgusting that people are emulating Bonnie and Clyde, which is just not there. And I think that would have been a massive saving grace because at two hours and 12 minutes, the film's pretty dry on character and drama, I think. It might, yeah, it might have jazzed things up a bit. I think, I, I agree with why I think that was done, though, because you, it's too easy to have a film, a two-hander with Costner and Harrelson, and you would just love them and root for them constantly. But the fact that we don't see Bonnie and Clyde and we're sort of carried along with the local people of the time thinking they're these major celebrities, oh, they really can't be that bad, honestly. Um, I think that would be why it was done, perhaps, to make the viewer kind of second guess and not just completely buy into but if you're giving half the story you need to have half the running time true yeah true and uh the final scene dave you had sort of we we really don't see as lokum was just explaining the the two main characters as it were until they meet their demise that's not a spoiler everyone knows a story and you said they're so young and you just kind of get this it's a very it's a rabbit in headlights shot and um i liked the character of the younger policeman I think he was that's kind of working with Costner and Harrison a local policeman he went to school with them both and Kevin Costner's trying to explain to him look these people are monsters they're not who you used to know and they are kids but do you agree with Lorcan that you you don't really feel anything for Bonnie and Clyde or I well the thing is I've not seen the original so I've got the different point of view from having not done that um, and I, I thought this was actually was a really good character study but specifically of the two men tracking down Bonnie and Clyde. Their uh, families so, didn't think they did, they, Dave? They're, they're who, who sued who? Who was trying to sue someone? Uh, so the, the, um, <laughs> after the original film came out, the uh, the Hamer family, who's Kevin Costner's character... Oh, after sued, Bonnie and Clyde came yeah, out, sued right. sued Bonnie and Clyde for misrepresenting Hamer because he's portrayed as kind of a, a bumbling fool when he was... The, the real story is that he came out of retirement and within 100 days he'd tracked and killed Bonnie and Clyde. And this is after they've been on the run for, what, 700 days or something? Two years. Two years, Two and, yeah. a, bit, that, two yeah. and a bit years, mm. uh, making the FBI look stupid and everyone else look stupid because I think the tagline for the, the film is something like they these guys play by their own rules, which is implying, you know, Bonnie and Clyde had their own rules and that's why they kept their spree going and then they've, they've kind of reversed it and saying well that's why they got these two rangers out of retirement because and the the texas rangers were an elite law force you know they they weren't you know your average cops they were there to go in and do difficult jobs and but it's the doing of that job which i felt gave the kind of character to these two in the film because they've seen and they they make it abundantly clear a lot during the movie they've seen a lot of death 
and they don't want to talk about it. And there's a great scene around a poker table just the night before where they're planning to finally get Bonnie and Clyde. Woody in storytelling mode. Yeah, Woody Harrison. <laughs> and Costner's just sat outside listening. And it's, um, uh, what's his name? Let me just say, uh, Thomas Mann as mm. the young deputy. So he's the one who knows Bonnie and Clyde. And Woody Harrelson is telling the story of how these two Texas Rangers got their legend. And you can just kind of see the young guy's face falling as he realises it's it's not a good legend to actually have mm. with him because of what they had to do to get it. And he realises he's now going to become part of a similar legend for the same reason, because they go in and it's, you know, no mercy. Yeah. And, you know, the film ends with the recovery of the bodies and they bring him into the town in Louisiana near where they're killed and it's a horrible mob scene. People are jumping on the car, trying to steal bits of their yeah. clothes, trying to steal Bonnie's hair, and it's horrific to watch. And all the, the six men involved in the ambush are just standing back, not just looking. Just shocked and appalled. And someone offers money to Costner's character for an interview, and he just walks away in Woody House and just delivers a very sombre kind of shame on you, shame on all of us, yeah. and they walk away. And the movie closes on, you know, really a downer. Very much so. And then you were talking before about the reverence that, that death has given in this film. And yes, they're horrendous criminals, but they're, they're, they're two dead people. You can't be leaning into their car and trying to take bits of their hair. And there's, kind of, there's very weird little moments um, throughout the film to remind you how dark their crimes are. And I think that they are trying to offset the fact, yes... Bonnie is this beautiful sort of femme fatale and it's a very romantic story if you're a local person of the time following them round for two years thinking they're movie stars and then tiny little bits like the girl in the um, in the camp gives them a little doll that hangs from the mirror of one of their victims and it reminds you they shot and killed that old couple like these are monsters and it's I do see a lot of what they were trying to do I like a lot of what they were trying to do with the like you said it's a film of of two couples and we don't see one couple and that was difficult but yeah it may be a bit slow I think like what what Dave was saying about the poker scene is like yeah it's somewhat of an effective scene but it's just one, one of scene many. in a long series yeah. of scenes of someone's talking about something um, and nothing there's very there's a very small visual element I always think like oh if, you, if you're going to make a movie if you're going to adapt a story especially um, why are you adapting it to the filmic narrative and I just don't think this was justified yes Although it I did do, sorry go on and I, I'm just going to say I do like John Lee Hancock's the, um, I think I the may director, have only seen yeah. Saving Mr. Banks and uh, his last one The Founder which I quite like both of those and there's this kind of neat cynicism under the surface of his films at least those two that I've seen um and this film, the cynicism is more overt. But then, like they were saying, like the ending, where like the, the everyday people are trying to like break into the car and steal stuff off the dead bodies, that just felt like way too much of a downbeat and like not I was really say, earned. Maybe, and he's not a dark director. No. I don't think. And this, I think, this film is missing a lot of that darkness. We could have, have gone further. We could have gone more morbid especially if you're going to have that ending you need to yeah. you really need to justify that it's a bit of a shocker did this story need to be told again or has this story really not ever been told because we're always focusing on Bonnie and Clyde it, it's quite nice to see the other side but you know Lorcan's Lork, right we should have seen more of both sides you know they could have they could have given more to Bonnie and Clyde um, the bits you do see because it's very investigative and procedural. Yeah. There's a there's a bit where they they kind of walk through one of the scenes of the crimes and you know make everyone else look really bad. Yeah. But uh, 
but in that scene, that's a point where there's a brief flash to Bonnie and Clyde. You could have had them more involved that way, yeah. By you know some kind of clever filming and trickery. Overall, I you know it it is a slog. It's it's a bit of a heavy drama. Thomas Newman's music is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Sorry, Lorcan, I know you didn't like it. <laughs> I thought so right, is, it was a bit cookie cutter for me. I think. Yeah. yeah. The guy who did um, the American, American Beauty, Beauty soundtrack wrote a edition then mm -hmm. uh, Shawshank as well. And there's, there's so he's a big, he's a theme. heavy yeah. film score guy as well. So it, he has sombre, hard-hitting scores as well. So that maybe adds another layer of heavy darkness. But I very much liked it as well. Anyway, Highwayman, give it a go, but it's a slog is the moral of the story. It's the Certificate 15 and it is on Netflix, so you don't even have to leave the house for it. Um, and I should also mention as well, we lost the late, great Agnes Fada last week, just last week. Um, her brilliant film Faces Places is available on Netflix. I loved this. Which film festival was this at? Was it the most recent Cambridge Film Festival or maybe the one before? But it's a brilliant... Oh, actually, or did I just see it at the Picture House? And I get confused. Yeah, um, so this is the... It's got the director Agnes Fada in it and a much younger photographer um, just known as JR and they go on a big journey through France and this artist is putting huge faces of people up on the sides of buildings and it's about community and it's a road trip film and it's the most unlikely of friendships and right up until her death I think they were friends they're always bowling around Instagram together so try Faces Places on Netflix to cheer you back up after The Highwayman um, we've been lent a short version of an interview Toby from Bums on Seats did in 2018 with Aga Baranowska from the BFI um, and this is a run through of Agnes Varda's career, her beginnings in photography and also her work in documentaries. So listen in and we'll be back with you in a few minutes. I wondered if you'd be able to tell me a little bit about Agnes Varda's background before her first film. The the French New Wave, which which came a little bit later, that was famous because they were all cine-literate. They were critics and then they became directors. But I believe Varda mentioned that she'd seen very few films before she embarked on her career as a director. Yes, that's true. She has mentioned a number of times that she had only seen a few films before making her first, uh, first film, uh, La Pointe Courage, in 1954. So before making films, um, she was interested in photography and art history, and she in fact studied photography and art history and started, started working as a photographer before making her first film. Going back to the French New Wave, I think she has a loose um, affinity with the French New Wave. Something else that it would be important to mention is that even though Agnes Varda was making films uh, while the French New Wave was happening and while the uh, left bank filmmakers were making their films, I think um, um, you can see that her style and her approach to cinema is very unique and distinctive. The Gleaning Truths season of Agnes Varda's work, it's eight films, nine films with faces places uh, long. Were those films chosen to illustrate the wide variety of her career as a, as a director? Yes, it does show a wide variety in Varda's work. Her first two films are included, so La Pointe Court and Cleo from 5 to 7. 
Then the following three films, so Le Bonheur, One Sings, The Other Doesn't, and A Vagabond, are three films where she very much focuses on female experience with three very different female characters, all very compelling, all very unique, but, but the focus is very much on the female experience. <laughs> Le truc rigolo, c'est qu'on va faire un film ensemble. Bah ouais, c'est ça le point de départ. Mais qu'est-ce qu'on va faire On va faire des images ensemble, mais autrement. Between her first two films, Agnes Varda traveled through China as a photographer, and later she visited Cuba, and when she was in America, she explored numerous subcultures. Would you say this, this insatiable curiosity is one of her main strengths as a filmmaker? Because for other directors, those might just have been detours, but they seem crucial to Varda's later work. Absolutely. She is, um, in my mind, very much a very curious filmmaker, but not only a filmmaker, but artist more broadly. So she, as I mentioned before, photography and painting um, are big influences for her. But also, she also experiments very much in terms of the structure of her films. One example that I can briefly talk about is Vagabond, uh, which is part of the Gleaning Truth season, which starts with a big revelation at the beginning and then kind of shows the life of the main protagonist, Mona, what led her to that big moment in her life. So definitely, I think curiosity and uh, a need or a willingness um, to what Varda herself called uh, to invent or reinvent the cinema, looking for new ways of approaching cinematic form. Bonne route, ma fille. La porte sera toujours ouverte. Merci. Thanks so much to Toby for the lending of that interview and to Aga Barnaska from the BFI. We're going to move on now to our third of five films this show, just discussing if we have time for that. We're just going to fly right through the Sisters Brothers, no offence, because we have a lot to say about Dumbo. Uh, Creepy director Tim Burton's taken the reins on this, remaking a Disney classic. Those guys haven't had the best of relationships in the past, so let's listen to the trailer and then all hell will break loose, I'm sure. You have something very rare. You have wonder. You have mystique. You have magic. Come with me. Together, we can soar on an elephant's wings. What's happening? Where are they taking her? Take Dumbo back inside. But she's his mom. Do something. He needs us. Look at me. We're gonna bring your mama home. Tim Burton, meaning creepy in a good way, of course, um, my very favourite director. We have a reunion of sorts 
Disney film directed by Tim Burton with Batman and Penguin. <laughs> so, so we've got Michael Keaton and Danny DeVito back being directed together by Tim Burton. Are you a general Burton fan, Alistair? Uh, not in recent years, um, but Danny DeVito has said, I should point, that this is the third part of uh, his circus trilogy with yeah, uh, Tim with Burton, Burton after Batman, Batman Returns, Returns and Big Fish. So oh, this yes. is the third part. This is closing off the circus trilogy. Which segues nicely into my question. Does Is Tim Burton just trying to shoehorn all his Burtonisms into this or has he... Is he trying to make a Tim Burton film or is he trying to remake Dumbo, if you know what I mean? I think <laughs> neither. Um, this is the most I've enjoyed a Tim Burton film in years. Um, and firstly, it has to go down to design. Tim Burton is a very visual director and, you know, in his old films like Batman, he created Gotham from scratch. There's a real tactility to the yeah. design there. And I felt there was a tactility to the design here. It didn't feel like the bloated CGI monstrosity that so many of his recent films have been. Like, I was watching... He got given too much money. Yeah, because I was watching clips from his Alice in Wonderland. I hated that both Everybody those. hates it. Made a billion dollars. It's his highest grossing film Wait, somehow. Dave says no, but don't listen to him right um, now. Go on. <laughs> and I was watching clips from that, and it is the most visually disgusting film ever made. It's just awful <laughs> to look at. And This had a, a Gotham dark slickness exactly. to it I liked. The worst thing that happened to Tim Burton was he was introduced to CGI. Here there is a perfect blend of CGI and practical effect and the C there isn't enough CGI to you know really knock it down a peg. I mean it's only really Dumbo and uh, Danny DeVito's little monkey sidekick yeah. that the CGI. Everything else is just minute enough to you know just to enhance the backdrops and um, it creates you know a, a proper world. It feels like the uh, Tim Burton has, you know, created something, you know, for the first time in forever. It feels like he's actually put the effort into imagining this world instead of just turning up and being like, yeah, I'll just make it all look gothic. It, f it feels like there's some effort for him. And it's most impressive because this is a Disney live-action remake and so many of these have just been, yeah, we'll just pr do the... Put uh, some actors in. Yeah, Stick we'll just Hermione Granger in, she can sing, not... We'll do the cartoon <laughs> beat for beat, but we'll somehow make it half an hour longer than the cartoon. But make it fashion. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you were saying the CGI is very good and on the baby elephant, on Dumbo himself. It was too much for me. You don't like sad films, really, Lorcan. It's, well, <laughs> but no, is it, it, it's stressful sad. It's peril sad. And I just, I could not handle the sadness of that baby elephant. I was reticent to see this because it was... I couldn't handle the original, and I, I think I was I had to stop watching it. I wasn't allowed to watch the VHS anymore because it's too much, and this flipping elephant is so sad. They did they did a good job with the the baby elephant, um, and in, in general, I did actually quite like Dumbo. I was surprised. Maybe it was because I'm I'm so used to just loathing everything Tim Burton does in the last <gasps> few years. I mean, rude. It's I mean, he used to, he went for, he was so good. But now that I actually uh, quite enjoyed Dumbo quite a bit. Um, although I can't agree on these special effects, there were some mm. moments where I was getting a bit of a, with all the green screen CGI, I was getting a bit of a Phantom Menace vibe. Ooh. Or should I say Elephant Menace? Very good. Sorry. Apologies. That was Alistair Level. Exactly. I'm, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, though, um, yeah, no, I thought uh, the screenplays by Aaron Kruger, who uh, I remember. I first saw his name when he made he wrote a, he, his breakout film was uh, Arlington Road, which I think is a fantastic screenplay and a really mm -hmm. good movie. Um, so I've, I've been a bit disappointed as to where his career has kind of gone. I think he's written three or four of the Transformers sequels, and he's kind of he needed a, a conservatory. We've all got to have I mean, kitchens we only redone. have a conservatory. <laughs> um, but I mean, with Dumbo, I think he shows that he is still 
a, quite a talented screenwriter. I think all mm-hmm. the character elements are there, all the hearts there, um, and it's just it's very well paced. Um, the only thing that really took me out of the film was the performance of the. Uh, main child actress. <gasps> I didn't um, like the little kids. Is, I, I think it was, maybe it's just the way that, that she was directed. But she's always got this kind of like she's always got this kind of like self-satisfied smirk on her face. And whenever you place her next to a little boy, she's just always like filled with wonder. Yeah, it's she doesn't weird. have any. Yeah, the childlike quality is what she's missing. She's yes. very cynical and which in, is not what you want in a child. No, and in a film about playful adults, when all the adults still have their sense of wonder, they work in the flipping circus and they believe in magic. These and guys. So heartfelt. And, yeah, yeah. And I agree. I, if I remember correctly, that's uh, Tandy Newton's daughter. Is it really? Yes, if I remember correctly. Oh, Lorcan, just you just hate mean, her I, even more now. I mean, I'm not surprised. Oh. <laughs> <gasps> anyway, Dave, restore some order. What did you think about the humans in this film? I had, I. I wasn't sure about Michael Keaton, you know. I I got the character they were trying to go for. I think he well, Michael Keaton did. Walt Disney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are you of the school of thought was Tim Burton's subtle digs to the Disney Corporation I think it was, everywhere. Yeah. Um, really? And I was really quite happy about that actually. Oh, darkness. I, I like the way he you, you know, he came in and it was just like, "Yo, cancel my call with the president. I've got to go see a flying elephant instead." I was like, "Oh yeah, go on then." I was just like, <laughs> go "That on doesn't yourself. seem that doesn't seem sinister or planning for anything in any way it's, oh no wait you're oh, going to be dear. a villain and um it was quite nice watching his dreamland fall apart um i you know this big fabled amusement park i wonder what kind of parallel we can draw there with walt disney so maybe a bit on the nose in that respect yeah. for you and actually I, I quite like the way keaton portrayed him because it, it seemed like he was trying to he's willy rein- wonka but not a nice guy yeah or was willy wonka re- a nice guy discussing his batman <laughs> persona but without yeah. wearing the costume yeah. Um, I was amazed he didn't just shout, I'm Batman at one point and charge <laughs> across the room. He may have done in an outtake, we'll never know. So, um, we, well, we've got two films left to review, guys. We're fast running out of time. Final word on Dumbo, good job or not on the remake? Overall worth watching, definitely a good family film. Okay. Uh, significantly less racist than the original cartoon, so thumbs up. Good to know. Danny Elfman back on form as well in the background. Oh, can never do any wrong. Um, Dumbo's a certificate PG is a family film. Uh, it's on everywhere in town, basically. You can see it wherever you like. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Barreling into the final 15 minutes of the film. This can be done, guys. Hang on to your hats. We have Pet Cemetery and the Sisters Brothers left to review. We'll dive straight into the Pet Cemetery trailer. Stephen King, another remake. In the woods today, L.A. discovered a charming little landmark. The Pet cemetery. Place to bury our pets and remember them. Might seem scary, but it's not. Perfectly natural. Just like dying is natural. Old town's been using this place for generations. Folks make a kind of ritual out of it. not some campfire story. Saw these in the trees up there. They're warnings. The local tribes carved them before they fled. They fear that place. There's something up there. Something that dates way back. Those woods belong to something else. So... 
another remake. We have a Stephen King classic novel. We have a pretty good hardcore but slim cast here. We've got Jason Clarke as the lead character, John Lithgow in it pretty much as much of the time. Two really brilliant, charismatic, magnetic actors. The story is Jason Clarke's character has moved out to the country with his wife and young family, get away from the rat race, whatever, living next door to John Lithgow. He's a running neighbour for miles. Live near creepy woods, which have a pet cemetery in the back of it. Cat dies, bring the cat back to life. Daughter dies, all hell breaks loose. Well, we're supposed to say that. People know that about the film, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, God. You've, well, if that, you kind of just, yeah. That's that's kind of the big switcheroo that you've done there, because in the... Everyone knows that, but if you didn't know that about pet... What? No. If you didn't know that about Pet Cemetery, no, come on. No. Okay. 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 Move on. Move Moving on. Moving <laughs> on. Things die, okay. but they don't stay dead. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> because so, there's a Pet Cemetery in the back of the thing. Right, look at the foreshadowing on the poster, guys, now. If you can't read that, get over yourself. Anyway, I am going to stop ruining things. In fairness, the trailer also is very sad. Thank you, Lorcan. Um, so, what we're looking at here is, what's the word I'm looking for? Now I can't speak when things aren't real. For, uh, do, uh, imagination? But what's that genre? <laughs> not, not sci-fi, it's... Fantasy. <laughs> fantasy. fantasy. It's fantasy does, horror. <laughs> yeah, does okay. this work as a fantasy or is it is it trying to make itself into a jumpy slasher horror? Do they sit well next to each other? Okay, so... The Stephen, Stephen King calls this book one of his kind of. He says it's one of his favourite books in that it's one of the hardest ones for him to write, and he he didn't he doesn't like rereading it either because this one's all about grief and the effects on people. Yeah, and there's an element of that in the film. Jason Clark's kind of, you know, a, he's a fairly normal father to start with. He he's done a lot of work as a doctor in the ER, so he's seen a lot of death. Yeah. And he's always got this tinge of sadness. The reason for the move is that he wants to just, you know He doesn't want to see any of that. He anymore. wants to see yeah. less of that. Mm. Uh unfortunately there's an accident on the campus he moves yeah. to, so you know, it's like being thrown back in the ER to him. Yeah. And this kind of triggers for him, at least, this descent into madness. And mm -hmm. that's a thing actually where they've cast him really well. He's he, his just eyes incredible. Get crazier and crazier as the film goes on and just when you think they can't get crazier they get even yeah, more crazy. he is going to go down as one of the greatest actors of his generation I am sure of it he's a slow burner come on he's great Lork and shush I think he's fine Love he's, Jason. he's a very slow burner if he's, if he's going to reach reach the heights you can, you can do what you like you live your best life if you're 50 AE whatever I think he's only in his 40s which is good news for me anyway so does are you into the Stephen King's kind of 80s, kind of, you love the Stephen King itch, you love, does I, this keep you with his universe that he's created, or does it not pay any homage to it at all? I am quite a big fan of the whole uh, the Stephen King's body of work, and like just uh, his work in both literature and films. he has a universe, doesn't he? He's created yeah, his own universe. very extensive universe. Mm -hmm. um, I'm so happy this film doesn't go into nostalgia mode, it could very, very easily have done so. Um, uh, the I was trepidatious going into this because I really like the original film Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery. Mm -hmm. um, the thing about that is it's the tone's quite camp, but the visual style, the aesthetic is very grim, and for some reason that really works for me. I think that's a really great like Halloween rewatch. I was movie. yeah, I was expecting eighties camp horror, which yeah. I'm into. So they changed it up. The directors Kevin Colch and Dennis Widmeyer, I believe, made a film 
came on Netflix a little while ago called Starry Eyes, which I, I really appreciate. I thought I thought that was quite a cool little like uh, for an early feature film. I thought that was really strong, um, and. The film itself, in terms of like following the book and following the original film, it does set itself up very much the same way. They change little, little superficial things, um, but then they they massively change up things in the second half, and it deviates very much from the story that we know. The problem is they set up the they set up the traditional story so well that the second half feels kind of. Um, not very well set up and kind of would random. Would we notice that if we hadn't seen the original, do you think? Or will they get away with it? Maybe. But the film's very wink-wink. Like, you okay. know that they know you know the story. Yeah. See? Um, I'm not a bad guy. <laughs> um, and they do, they, do play with, they do play with your knowledge of, like... Because I think Pet Sematary okay. is quite... The, the story's fairly well known. Even loosely, it's pretty well known, yeah. Um, and they do play with it. Um, the, the confusing thing in all of it, though, was these directors clearly uh, like doing the practical effects is really great like um, Dave mentioned this a bit with the an injury on campus and that's really well done that's, it's, really, that's um, all practical very werewolf in London yeah whatever, very yeah. just like they took their time they lit it properly um, but then there's some instances of shocking CGI which is so so incongruous to like the rest of it and then every, and then I don't know the second half gets weird they've let gets themselves weird. down the tone of the story and the effects get strange it, to me it became more of a kind of slasher film in the second half instead of this kind of tense horror yes but the trouble was at that point I I wasn't scared anymore I actually started laughing a lot in the cinema and people stared at me Uh, I I would agree (laughs) and then I did like at the end a bit of the campiness did come back but that's only because I it was what I was expecting and wanted but I think they they had three tones in this at least that Mm. I could count if they picked one and stuck with it I think they would have done a great job and they would have brought an entirely new generation back to this story um it's i think it was better than the new attempt at it though but that's just because i hate clowns perhaps who knows um do we have any final words super quickly on pet cemetery because we are quickly running out of time friends you could I, I'd, I'd give it a mild recommendation it's it's a it's a half decent horror film it's it's better than a lot of the horror half it's, a, it's a fun watch yeah fun sure watch. Yeah. yeah i had a good time with it it's it's a certificate 15 it's showing at the view and the light multiplexes in town and pretty much every surrounding cineworld i'm going to crash you straight into the sisters brothers trailer right now we're the sisters brothers s-i-s-t-e-r-s like sisters Looking for a man named Warm. He stole something from our employer. We have enough money to stop for good. Stop what? Killing people. <laughs> yeah, right. Sometimes I feel I've got to run away. Do you realize that our father was struck raving mad and we got his foul blood? Our father drank, Charlie. <laughs> Are you upset? I'm leaving. What's wrong with you? You hit me in public, Charlie. So I slap you, you slap me back, Raven. So go ahead, hit me, hit me. Jesus Christ, what is your goddamn problem? Have not seen this one. What's it about, Lorcan? Um, so, uh, very quickly, it's about um, a pair of brothers uh, who are um, whose surname is Sisters, so they're the Sisters Brothers, played by Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley. Great combo. Great combo. Yeah, very well. They play off each other very well. Um, and basically, they're put in, tra- uh, put 
on an assignment to find an escapee prospector who's working. So we're gold rush here. Gold here. gold rush here. Yes, mm-hmm. they they have to track and um, bring back this um, kind of rogue uh, prospector. Um, and then as the film goes on, we realize there's more to this prospector character than we've been told, and the sisters' brothers get more involved in kind of uh, his story. Um, overall, I thought it was really interesting. I uh, I wasn't expecting a kind of slow, contemplative, uh, philosophically inclined Western. It's, I think it's been kind of advertised as like an action buddy cop movie, which I don't blame them for doing when you've got this cast. I wasn't expecting it to be a comedy at all, but that was only based on the poster. So. <laughs> That's Maybe it's just a bit of mixed marketing there. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I mean, the bits of comedy that there are are really, are, it is really funny, I think, and the, the action that's in it, I think, is really well executed, but mostly it is a very slow, contemplative. I like this like little trend now of Western genre as like a, meditative experience well because it's what it's famous for the long shots across the i was about to say serengeti you know what i mean um <laughs> so it's, it's showing a couple times a day at the picture house it's also one at the light in the imax screen does that make sense to you alistair um not because it has very interesting uh, cinematography i mean from a western perspective because i mean the first five minutes of it are shot in this very sort of strange way where you pretty much cannot see what's happening. It's very dimly lit on purpose, so you're as confused as the characters as they enter into this shootout in the dead of night. Um, so, yeah, the being at the IMAX is uh, very strange, um, but it is very interesting visually, and it does benefit from the, the big screen experience. Um, what I was going to say is, um, it's from the director Jacques Audiard, who's mm-hmm. a French director who's made the film uh, A Prophet uh, yeah. and uh, Rust and Bone with uh, Marianne Cotillard, uh, which is a movie that I absolutely love. Okay. Um, I'm... You know, I'm not. I like. I've liked all of his films that I've seen. Rustin Bond's the only one that I've loved, and I think that the reason that I love that as opposed to his others is because his other films are like very masculine. Um, they deal with you know subjects of masculinity. They trade in you know very familiar genres like A Prophet was a prison drama, and it did exactly what you'd expect from a prison drama. Mm-hmm. While Rustin Bond added that grit to um, a, a genre that you know, he wouldn't normally touch, which in this case was the melodrama. Hearing the Sisters Brothers, I was expecting the worst. I was just expecting it to be the, you know, the the textbook really masculine, really gruff western. But it's not. It's it's actually got a surprising amount of tenderness in the uh, the brotherly relationship between um, the two pairs. Uh, uh, between the two pairs, between the pair. The pair. And uh, John C. Riley is fantastic, and it is great to see um, Johnny Cash and uh, Dewey Cox Joaquin on screen, Phoenix is his on name. screen together. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's the Sisters Brothers. That's Certificate 15. It's on at the Picture House and the light in town. We have a little bit of Thomas Newman in the background for you to say goodbye. This is from American Beauty. Dave picked this for me. Dave knows everything about every film score that's ever ever been brought out um (laughs) he does uh same composer as did the music for the highwayman which we spoke about available now on netflix if you are tuning in late you've already missed brilliant reviews of shazam dumbo pet cemetery and a whistle stop tour of the sisters brothers which are all out in local cinemas now if you're listening at the two o'clock show on sunday and you miss stuff you can listen back on our podcast, which tends to come out Monday, Tuesday. You can find it on the Cambridge 105 radio website, or if you look for Bums on Seats on Twitter or Facebook, you'll be able to find it there, plus podcasts of all the shows if you've missed any of them. Thank you very much to my reviewers, Lorcan. Thank you. And Alistair. Been a pleasure. And Dave. Cheers. And now enjoy some Tom and Newman to see out the rest of the show. Cheers.